Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello there. Hi, nice to see you again. This is Peter and this is Phil. Hello everyone. And we are back once again with the Hellraiser Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about the epic comics again. Books three and four. So shall we crack on, Phil? Let's crack right on. Good. So book Three comprises of three stories. They're called The Crystal Precipice, The Blood of a Poet, and Songs of Metal and Flesh. Hmm. So let's begin with The Crystal Precipice. Right. So this story is immediately different to the others we've seen, because first of all it's set in the future, and it's sort of, it's got a sci-fi feel to it. It's on a different planet. Hmm. The group of people who have arrived on this planet in a spaceship. Yeah, it's kind of like a B-movie sci-fi type thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So they've arrived on this planet, and immediately they see in the distance a what looks like a city, a crystal city. Mm. And as they're looking, they look through their binoculars, and there's a figure stood near the city. It looks like a human figure, which is a bit weird, because this whole planet is completely dead and void of any life. And we get a brief glimpse of who this figure is, and it's our old friend, Face. Face. Who we saw, of course, in the previous story, The Warm Red. Mm. He's back. He's on a different planet. He's on a different planet. He looks a bit different as well. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, this this straight away, I want to say about the art in this particular story, is it's completely not my thing. I mean, it's not bad. No, it's not bad. But it's um, it's not a style that I particularly like. It's sort of quite cartoony and mm. the colouring and stuff. Is... I think I'd agree with you, actually. Yeah. It's, it's just... written, this story's written by the same person that wrote The Warm Red, but the art is by someone else. So then something odd happens. These little crystalline things appear in the sky and come towards them. And they're not sure what they are. One of them, the sort of renegade, hot-tempered idiot of the group, as there always has to be one, he's, he offers to shoot at them. And the others are saying, no, maybe we should wait and let them know that we're peaceful. Mm. And then you get sort of faces in a monologue talking about these things. And these things are, he calls them his crystalline friends. And it says, they do not look, but they can see. They do not think, but they are filled with wonder. They do not talk, but the discourse between them is beautiful and harmonious. Yeah, and I I quite like this idea because, well, f- f- first off, um, I like the idea that Face, a Cenobite, is on a different planet. Mm. You know, it really sort of expands the scope hugely Absolutely. <laughs> of yeah, yeah. the Hellraiser universe. And I I like the idea that these crystalline entities... He likes them, yeah, because they are the perfect sort of thing of of order. Yes, they're not flesh. No, and he says that because this planet, there's no flesh on this planet at all, mm. because it's it's just completely lifeless. He even says the flesh is not wanted here. It is not wanted on this perfect ordered world, this Eden of rock and dust and crystal. So that's the basic idea behind this planet. And yeah, Face is really into this, and that's, that is pretty interesting. It's good. Yeah. Then we cut to the camp of these people who have arrived, the humans, and the the renegade idiot man decides that his name is Ernest. He decides to have a bit of a rape, as you do. <laughs> he decides to... There's a lovely-looking lady, part of the group. is two two guys and two girls, and he decides to have his wicked way with one of them. And it implies he's done it before, but she's not happy. No. She's not really enjoying this, and this isn't a very pleasant page. <laughs> And this is interesting, again, here, um, the sort of thing of what 
do the Cenobites want or what do they appreciate? Mm. I mean, where Faith says, um, my friends are talking about the crystalline entities. My friends will not know what to make of the events to follow. They are too perfect to comprehend the ugliness of the flesh or its weaknesses or its evil. And then we get into this rape. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's an interesting sort of concept. But then Faith talks about wanting to choose one of the humans because he's talking about the, the precipice, which is this city that they can see in the distance is this world's puzzle and he wants to pick one of the humans to solve the puzzle and you know meet leviathan and and go into you know what we know and love and he decides to choose this rapist man so yeah i'm I'm not sure about that myself just because what i got from it was that the the puzzle itself was going to choose someone to solve it that one of them would come to the fore to solve it uh and face was using evil earnest as, as his instrument uh, to sort of facilitate the events to create the solving of the puzzle. Okay, obviously you've you've thought about this a lot more than I have again. I just uh, take it at face value. <laughs> uh, face to say, yeah, I found my instrument. Talking about Ernest, so I just assume that was him choosing him to... Anyway, as, as we've proven before, when it comes to comics, I'm a bit of an idiot. Well, so, um, we don't know. We don't know. But back to the story, the the other guy in this group, the big sort of buff blonde hero... He grabs Ernest in the middle of the rape, well, before he actually gets to rape her, wangs him around the head, <laughs> and then throws him out the tent, or the ship, are they are at the moment, and uh, shoots the ground and makes him leave. Yeah, he exiles him. Exiles him. Bearing in mind, this pretty much means that he's doomed him to death, because there's no life or water or anything on this planet. See, in this kind of situation, you should always just shoot them, shouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to basically yeah. kill them anyway... Don't give them an opportunity to get back at you later. Well, it's funny because the, uh, he says to the, the Andrea, the girl who was being raped, he says, what do you want me to do with him? And she says, feed him. Feed him his balls. <laughs> and then the long guy decides not to <laughs> so feed goes, him his balls. I do, I'm not going to go that far. Gonna, I'll just let you go. You, I want to see you run, though. You better run. Nothing bad will happen. Yeah. Not like there's a strange, mysterious figure we saw earlier on in the background. No, everything is fine. So then Barry, the blonde guy, the big buff blonde Barry, <laughs> he decides to lead the two ladies towards the city, but it turns out to be a lot further away than he thinks. It's sort of an optical illusion, mirage type thing. Mm. And on the way, they camp overnight, and what happens again? But Ernest turns up again and grabs Andrea once more. Yeah. But this time he's with Face. He's Face with has Face. got... Yeah, he's got him. Face has got Ernest and he's making him do these things. Yeah, and he's sort of saying, like, you can do whatever you want with her now, you know. You paid the price... Yeah. All this kind of thing. So he's about to do whatever he wants with Andrea, but then Barry decides to come looking for her because she's gone missing. And then Face is like, oh, God, okay, we can't really have this anymore. I obviously have to kill her. And he gets out a big knife and kills her. Yeah. So what do you think was Face's plan here with Andrea before he killed her? Well, this is the thing, isn't it? You know, I mean, his his words there would say that he's saying uh, what you said, that he's saying, yeah. right, Ernest, you're... You, you've braved the precipice and now we can do what we want with this girl and, mm. you know, solve the puzzle of this world, etc. Let's have some fun. Yeah, but um, it, it, unfortunately it's, it's sort of not especially clear at that point. Not really. But anyway. Yeah, they, moving on. They bury Andrea, the two of them that are left, and they carry on and Faith decides it's time to let them reach the precipice. Mm. There's an interesting line here from Ernest where when they're looking down on them burying her, Mm. Uh, Ernest says, let me kill him, face. Give me the strength. And yeah. I know I can take him, which is another kind of 
Cenobite power that yeah, I guess absolutely. hasn't been revealed he, before. He obviously, when he was a, just a normal human, when he's a normal human, he's not stronger than Barry because otherwise he could have fought him earlier on. Mm. Yeah, so it implies that Face could give him the strength should he choose to. Mm. And that's interesting. Yeah. So they, um, yeah, they move off following the um, crystalline things in the sky, and Felice actually starts shooting at them at this point. That's right. Actually, is that the, the that's the moment where um, Face implies that Face decides that it's time for them to reach the precipice, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So, it, I mean, this is basically saying all humans are flawed and idiots. Yeah. <laughs> so they arrive at the precipice, mm-hmm. and Ernest is there. And yeah. Face has actually said, I'm going to let Ernest handle this on his own because he's, yeah. ag- he's agreed to make an additional payment. Mm. He says that, which is interesting. Again, little hints of things that are, which are quite interesting throughout the story. Yeah. Uh, and they see Ernest guzzling water. Yeah, and they have no idea how he got <laughs> and it. And waving. So they realise there must be something going on. There's some other life here. And they're at this huge, big crystal... Yeah, with a chasm. Thing. And they have to sort of make their way across. And they decide not to do it now it's getting dark. They'll do it in the morning. Uh, and at this point, they do the classic horror film thing of going, well, Barry, I'm, I'm going to go off and take a leak. Yeah, yeah. You know, remember what happened last time someone did that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they got kidnapped and killed. Well, this happens again, and Barry, yeah. unfortunately, he's gets, dead. He gets skewered mm. on a spike. Bless him. He gets skewered, and Ernest turns up, grabs hold of her. And Ernest is... Um, earlier on, we didn't mention this, but Ernest has had a, has a bit of his face removed kind of he's got a massive scar on his face that implies happened when he first went to the precipice and now something else happens with his face Uh, as he grabs Felice she rips his face with her fingers and he's completely gouged Mm. so I guess this is the payment that he's been making to face well exactly you know and face is actually quite admiring of her here when she scratches (laughs) scratches his face and then unfortunately for Ernest he just, he gets a bit impatient and decides he wants to kill her. So he gets out his gun to shoot her, but he misses and he shoots the crystal. And this is this is ridiculous because uh, Face is going, Ernest, don't do this. You don't know what the risk is, and he's like, yeah. Shut up, Face! Yeah. Shut up! As if. <laughs> <laughs> so then it, Face implies that Ernest has killed one of these crystal entities. So because of that, he's not happy with him anymore, and he wants to punish him. Yeah, I mean, here he says um, the irony is that you could have been one of these perfect crystal mm. entities. Yeah. I think that's what Face's plan was. He was yeah. going to try and transform them all into that. But instead, yeah, instead. he's going to take him down to hell and turn him into a pet, he says. And this is interesting. We have a chamber in hell for the likes of you. We Cenobites like our pets the same as you do, but ours are more complex. Yeah, some assembly is required. <laughs> Which, again, harks back... Or harks forward to um, the chatter beast, yeah. In number four, which Absolutely. is you know looks when you look at it, it looks like it's made up from different parts of different things. So it's a pet that's been made by the Cenobites, yeah. Which mm. is nice. So that's referenced in this story. And you see a few other Cenobites in this story as yeah. well at the end. So Butterball. One looks very suspiciously yeah, like, like Butterball, Butterball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it ends on a an amusing note with him taking him down to hell and saying this could be the start of a beautiful friendship. Yeah. Right, so now we've just gone through the story, uh, let's talk about this actual story, The Crystal Precipice. Mm. Because we've been talking about it and we've said these things that we like, we like this bit, we like that bit, this is nice, this is interesting, this is fun. But we've got to say that neither of us are really massive fans of this story, are we? 
No, I don't. I, I, it didn't really get me when I read it. No, me neither. I mean, there are most of these most of these stories in these comics are brilliant, and I really enjoyed them. I think they're excellent. There's a couple that I'm not as keen on, and this is one of them. Mm. And it could be to do with the artwork, as as you said. I agree with you. I'm not a massive fan of this sort of artwork. Yeah, yeah. Something about it didn't 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 get me. This story. Um, I think there are lots of interesting things in it, as we've just discussed. There's mm. lots of little hints at interesting bits and bobs. But as a whole, the story, I was kind of like, oh, I don't really know why you all kind of, you know, made this story. It's it doesn't really no. add a huge amount to the Hellraiser universe. But you know, it's not terrible. It's just um, not one of my faves. No, no, I agree with that. It's yeah, it's not bad. It's just one that I don't really. I wouldn't really go back to reread just for fun. Mm, definitely. Definitely agree. Okay, should we move on to the next one then? Yeah, Bear's um, mentioning Ooh. here as well that in between the stories in these books, there's these great panels. Yes, we did mention this last paintings, time. Yeah. And some of them are really interesting. There's one right here of like a kind of Indian totem pole yeah. with a skinned man jumping off it. Jumping out of it as if this totem pole is a you know hell pillar. Yeah, it it's brilliant. There's so much in in that little image yeah. that you think, "Wow, you know what was going on there?" You know, I, and there's really one like later on in this book of Adolf Hitler yeah. holding the puzzle box. Yeah, and that immediately makes you go, "Eh?" So what the hell is that all about? Oh, it's brilliant, isn't it? Just one little image yeah. can can really make you go, "Oh my god, a whole story there!" You know, there's a whole. And it, I love the way that this just make, constantly makes you think about how many puzzle boxes and gateways to hell yeah, have been yeah. over the years. You know, influencing humanity and stuff. It's great. <laughs> good stuff. Very good. So we move on to the second story in book three, which is called "The Blood of a Poet." Mm. This one's set in 1925. Yeah. So we've gone from the way in the future back to the past. In Gay Paris. Gay Paris. Oui. Just like Hellraiser Bloodline. Yes. It's a shame that Jacques doesn't turn up in this it story. It is. I could have done with a, a surfer dude <laughs> in this story. This one's about a poet, funnily enough, from the title, who is a bit disillusioned. He wants to sell his poems, but he's got no money. He's down on his luck. He's wandering through Paris just trying to get some inspiration and find someone who can make him famous with these poems he's written. He stumbles across randomly uh, Jean Cocteau in a, in a restaurant or outside in a cafe, mm. and he sits down with him, ends up showing him his poems, and he tells him that they're rubbish. <laughs> he says that he needs to, you know, disturb the angels yeah. with his poems. Mm-hmm. So obviously he's written a poem about, like, you know, fluffy kitten or something <laughs> like that. And Cocteau's like, no, no, mate. mate. There needs to be a bit more substance to these poems. Yes, absolutely. So he goes into this bookshop that specialises in books on the occult. Mm. And he meets a young lady in there called Melanie. And Because it also advertises that there's rooms to rent. Uh, But he can't afford any of these. No. But it just so happens there's a gentleman in this bookshop who says he can be of assistance. Yes, Monsieur Daniel. (laughs) And he talks about this. There's a house that has a spare room, which is like a commune for artists, isn't it? Artists and painters and writers. and Yeah, and it sounds a little bit people. strange, because this woman doesn't really want to recommend it to him. Mm. This bloke turns up and he's very much like, oh, you'll be good there, yes, off you go. You'll be welcome with open arms. And he's kind of like, hmm, okay. Yeah, but we as an audience are told there's something bad happening now, because in the sort of thought bubble, it's saying... I can't now recall if he actually uttered that accursed name 
of it at that point or not. So you're thinking, oh, hang on, so there is something bad going to happen. So we know there is something bad about this house. But at the moment, the guy doesn't know that, and he's happy to be offered a room for free. Mm-hmm. So he goes to see it. Yeah. And it's a big old French townhouse with lots of rooms in it. Yeah. And it's been left by a, a patron of the arts, I think he says, isn't it? It was a, a trust fund for people just to live there for free. Right. Which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, and he meets the uh, concierge, mm-hmm. who's a very small, described as gnome-like yeah. <laughs> little guy called Sibaud. Sibaud. Yeah, there's a lot of French names. This. We're probably going probably gonna to embarrass ourselves trying to pronounce these French names. Yes. Apologies. Sorry. To our our French listeners. Let's call them all Jacques. (laughs) (laughs) So our our gnome-like concierge uh, takes him through the house. and um, Yeah, so he takes him to the the directeur of the house, whose name is Barzac. Mm -hmm. And he's this sort of prim, proper gentleman, French gentleman, with a nice trim little moustache. Yeah, it says he do, he used to be an author. Mm. Um, at, at the moment, he doesn't so much write as record. Ah, so there's a lot of subtle hints here. Yeah. Oh dear, what's going on? Um, and so he has a little meeting with him so he can decide whether or not he can stay. Yeah. There's also lots of nice details here where he's saying there was a faint fetid smell to his apartment, which reminded me of the office of our town's undertaker, even though everything appeared to be clean. So and then like, he realises that the smell... Is coming from the guy, Barsack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-mm. Very weird. He shows him his little room, which which looks very pleasant, especially compared to the horrible corridor he just was led up. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's allowed to stay. He decides to stay. Excellent. And every evening they have a, a sort of formal dinner. Mm. They have dinner. They have to be sort of in their best clothes. Go on down. And he meets the other residents of the place, yeah. who are all a bit unusual. Yes, they are. Yeah. We won't go through them all individually by name. No. But you've got an artist. There's a lady described as a blonde waif. Mm, a sculptress. Mm-hmm. You've got an old musician. And finally, you've got a, a guy, an engineer, whose passion was automata and clockwork toys. Mm. And now it's at this point they have a bit of a conversation. Mm-hmm. They all seem to be sort of sniping at each other. Yeah. And the uh, the name Le Marchand. Yeah, is mentioned. Up. Yeah, about clockwork, clockwork birds. And at the moment, our uh, the hero of the story doesn't know what's going on, but he realizes that when this name is mentioned, everyone sort of goes, "Oh." Mm. <laughs> so the meal sort of degenerates, and then um, the musician mm. fellow, the old musician, has uh, quite a bad fit. He does, which they all kind of just ignore. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's not looking really good weird. so it's far. Horrible. No, it's not. And this atmosphere starts to permeate into our poor young poet, mm-hmm. and he goes to his room and starts to write. And then you've got this brilliant image, I really like this image, all this stuff's great, of above his head, he's, there's all these creatures as if they're swirling around his brain, mm. or are they actually in the house, mm. or are they just in his mind, and they're all weird, sort of zombie-style, horrific things, one that looks a bit like Brundlefly. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. I like that. So, and he's got blood coming out from underneath his fingernails. Yeah. And then he wakes up and he's like, well, that was a weird dream. But there's blood on his notebook. Uh-oh. Whoa. <laughs> so now he's wandering around the house at night and he can hear screaming. Yeah. And stuff like that. And he can also, he's also found a name scratched into a into a frame, door yeah. frame. Paquet. Paquet. Um, so 
There's a mystery here. There is a mystery here. There's There's a a big it's a haunted mystery. house mystery story at the moment. So he's looking around through the rooms, uh, and he goes into the room of the chap who makes the clockwork toys. Yeah. Uh, just wanders in there and it's full of stuff of little robots and automata yeah it's impressive sort of steampunk kind of stuff, stuff. Mm. there's a really no- interesting bit here where he says the Warren Cogs droned on in an endless mockery of life and there in the centre of it all how does a young bird react to its first snake can our souls recognise things our eyes have never befelled, mm. beheld um, so whatever it is in the middle of the room is, yeah. is really bad yeah and he, he's <laughs> Hiding it. Mm. So at this point, I'm quite enjoying this story. Yeah, me too. Yeah, this one's good. Yeah. And the artwork, should we talk about the artwork? It's, it's... Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's nice. I like it. It's very detailed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I do enjoy it. So at this point, I'm thinking the Marchand and yeah. Clockwork Toys and mm-hmm. weird evil poetry. <laughs> Something's going to happen soon. Yeah, so carrying on. Uh, he does a bit of digging, our young poet, into this name that he's found scratched on the door. And everyone's kind of basically giving him the brush off. Yeah. Mm. I think they're a bit annoyed that he's doing all this digging. And he's so he's walking around, you know, in this very oppressive atmosphere of this house. Mm. He actually finds his notebook again from the night before and has a look at what he's yeah. written. And it's terrible and frightful and <laughs> beautiful and you know really like powerful yeah so it's obviously this house is working on his creative instinct and uh yeah Cotto something there's some kind of demonic muse at work mm. so he goes back to the bookshop and meets uh monsieur daniel mm. trying to find out about the uh, disappearance of this chap who'd scrawled his name on the door frame yeah and doesn't really get much info there but the young lady who we met earlier at the bookshop, she sort of offers to meet him in secret. Yeah, she knows something. Yeah. Mm. And we find out that the Monsieur Daniel in the bookshop and the little concierge, the gnome concierge, <laughs> are uh, brothers. Yeah. So that's a bit of a web of intrigue, isn't it? Mm. Getting people in there. And the key point here is that Melanie, the young lady at the bookshop, says that basically lots of young artists go to this house and they're never seen or heard of again. Yeah. So, so at this point he's thinking, ah, oh, right. Check out. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, but I think I might make my own way. Yeah. But he doesn't do that, of course. He goes back to dinner. Yeah. And it th- th- gets even more crazy this time. They're mm-hmm. all arguing, throwing drinks in each other's faces. Uh, we have another massive seizure. And... He sort of runs back to his room in horror as they're all hitting each other. Yeah. And there's another great image of him, of him writing. Surrounded by demons. Oh, God. Writing. Surrounded by all sorts of weird frog-headed ladies. and <laughs> Half-headed ladies. All sorts of bizarre stuff. That frog woman's a bit weird, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so then he sort of wanders around the house again, you know, full of fear. Mm. And he goes into another of the uh, gentleman's rooms, the painter, I believe it is, and finds him... Having sex, having some bondage sex, yeah, with, with, the, lady um, with the whip, with the sculptress, with the sculptress, whippy lady, and they're sort of mocking him at this point, saying, yeah. "Come in, come and join us," you mm. know, and they're saying, "You're a fool, you're a coward, you haven't got the creativity to to do this, you know, you can't stay here. We work, we serve a higher power." Yeah. Um. So yeah, so he goes back to his room and he just sort of sees the things he's been writing and he's quite horrified. Yeah, his mind is changing; he's being worked upon. Then it turns out that Mathieu, the musician from earlier on, the one who had the fit, 
at the dinner party, he has died. He killed himself in the yeah. night. So our um, young poet is obviously getting really stressed out with this now. <laughs> really doesn't want to be there, to be quite honest. Yeah, uh, fair he, enough. I he think. meets Melanie again. There's a bit of a sort of blossoming relationship going on there. And she starts to really dish the dirt. Here. Yeah. She says that this house was built by Le Marchand, a strange maker of puzzle boxes and other weird machinery with a decidedly unsavoury reputation. <laughs> One day he disappeared. Nobody knows why. Mm. And this is great because she said, you know, the house itself was built upon catacombs. Yeah. Bone powder was used in the mortar. Blood was used in the cement. Yeah, mm. which is horrible. And it's also because, I mean, it's great because in Paris there are lots of catacombs where you can just go down nowadays and see loads of, you know, skulls lined up in a row. And... Absolutely, yeah. So it's all very Parisian. But the fact that this house was made, you know, from the dead is <laughs> implying... Yeah, so this is another great side to Lamar Marchand, isn't it? I mm. mean, I, I like the idea that he had this freaky house and was doing all this yeah. crazy stuff. And so we so mentioned on. this before uh, in the other epic comics we did, which also had something designed by Lamar Marchand. But we'll say it again now, just for the sake of clarity: the Lamar Marchand that's portrayed in these comics is very different to the one they decided to talk about in Bloodline. Yes, because in Bloodline, it's just a young guy doesn't really know what he's doing. He's a he's the hero of the piece. He makes one box. Yeah. And then dies. Yeah. But his bloodline remembers how to make these boxes. Yeah. Whereas in this in the comics it's very much like this Le Marchand, he was a bit of a weirdo. Yeah. He liked to create, you know, odd shit. He was well, he was completely you know, he was the Duke Delisle, you know. He yeah, was, he was the en- engineer, the original engineer. Absolutely. He was completely aware of what he was doing and so Which on. Which I much prefer. <laughs> Me too. As an idea. Me this weird too. guy in, you know, the seventeenth century. Yeah. Sneaking around, building all these puzzles and houses that could be huge puzzle boxes. Yeah, and, and doing weird rituals yeah, and stuff. It's great yeah, stuff. it's great. So we like that better, but mm. there we go. There we go. Um, he runs back to the house and has a little meeting with Barsak. Mm-hmm. And basically, Barsak starts to talk about the Cenobites. Yeah. Each resident of this building is beholden to them. <laughs> and they need to make sacrifices, exchanges to um, allow them to have this muse, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this guy's going to be the latest sacrifice. Yeah, they all jump on him, seize him, and he's going to be sacrificed to the Cenobites, which is like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all of a sudden he's chained up and they're summoning the Cenobites, mm. which they do. Now, at this point, and this is crucial, throughout the story, our little gnome-like concierge um, has been pretty badly treated mm. by these people in the house. And now that they've got our young poet locked up, he actually says, look, you are the one. You can't die. You can't go with the Cenobites. You're the one. I'm going to help you. You can't share in their fate. You know, you've got you've to get out of this. Yeah. Uh, which is an interesting twist. Mm. So then he finds himself chained up, you know, at the ritual... And bloody hell, yeah. lo, lo and behold. <laughs> lo and behold, the Cenobites arrive. The Cenobites arrive. And we've got our, you know, our, the classics from the original films. We've got Pinhead, Female, Butterball. You've all got the original Engineer in the background, it looks like. Yeah. Crawling along. You've also got, on all fours, you've got like a chatter. It's not a chatter beast, because it's kind of like the chatterer, but on all fours. That's And that's really cool, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, that's kind of I get what we get that... Clive Barker wanted to go for in the beginning with was, Chatterer. Yeah, like a chattering monkey. Yeah, but, like he was kind of jumping around. And yeah, but this this is sort of like a chatter beast sort of thing, a chatter dog, but mm. not made up of other things. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's fun. Yeah. This is in 1925, so you've mm. got that. That can put some kind of timeline on because we know when Elliot Spencer was. Turned yeah, wasn't into... that the 1920s as well, though? Yeah, but it mainly. So he's not been pinned for very long. No, <laughs> and but that also now puts female Cenobite and Butterball yeah. in the frame of, of that timeline. True. Yeah. Whereas when I watched the second film, I always for some reason thought they came later because they look a bit eighties. Yeah, because <laughs> they, they look really she looks 80s. a bit eighties when she dies. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. This implies female and Butterball are possibly not Chatterer as we know him from the films, the mm. upright. Human humanoid chatterer. Mm. He may have come later. Uh, according to Nicholas Vince, he was a stand-up comic in the 1930s. <laughs> yeah, so, you know. But the films say that he was a little boy, but that little boy could have come from anywhere. Anyway. So basically what happens here is our young poet is trapped. Mm-hmm. He's going to be sacrificed. Yeah. But then he starts to speak. Mm. And he uses his amazing new creativity to convince the Cenobites that he should live yeah. and Barsak should go. Exactly. He uses his poetry, really, and his his, you know, creative juices flow. And this is this is kind of cool, isn't it? Because basically what you we all know that Pinhead is a great fan of the monologue. Yeah. He's a great fan of words. Mm. And this is like a, a word off. Yeah. This guy's talking to him and Pinhead's kind of watching going, hmm, hmm, I, I yeah, like your yeah. style, actually. Mm. I like what you're saying here. Yeah. And uh, that's what happens. They take Barsak to hell. So he gets out of that situation. Yeah. He's in the him. house. Yeah, great. And um, unfortunately, he finds out that Melanie has been killed mm. in a mysterious mugging. Yeah. Well, it says she'd been stabbed by a mugger, an innocent victim of the city's madness. Mm. And basically, the story wraps up with them saying to him, right, you're the master of the house now. Yeah. You've got to stay here. And he's like, I can't get away from this. And there's nothing else for me, really. I will. And he moves in. And eventually, presumably, to face the same fate. Yeah. I would say. Pretty much. Yeah. So what do you think about this story, then? I quite like this one. I do think, I think it's a little long. Um, When I first read it, I was a bit like, okay, come on, where's this going? Come on. But I like the basic premise of it, and I like the artwork, and I like the story, like where it goes. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I like this one. Um, I like the idea of weird things going on in houses, you know, yeah, that yeah, you don't yeah. know about. Like, this is this sort of artist's commune where people are doing bizarre things in their rooms. Mm. And I like the idea, and it, it happens in a few of the other stories as well, there's a link between creativity and hell you know yeah. the kind of yeah, yeah. The, the very act of writing a story or, or being creative you know you have to tap into something other mm. for that and that could be hell influencing yeah. that definitely it's a good one this yeah yeah this isn't for your eyes it's for your ears which brings us on to the last story in book three which is called songs of metal and flesh now the first thing to mention about this one is the writer. It's written by Peter Atkins. Peter Atkins. Who wrote Hellraiser 2 and Hellraiser 3. Wow. Yeah. Cool. So this one is definitely, you know, proper canon. <laughs> this is written by someone who writes the films. Mm. And it is another one in which there is a huge link between creativity yeah. and hell. Yeah. And this one's really good. <laughs> this one I is like, very good the story's excellent and the yeah. artwork's great as well it's really sort of realistic pastel colours sort of painted yeah it's lovely yeah it's really lovely um, so very quick rundown of the plot of this one 
Um, yeah, we rambled a bit on the last one. <laughs> we, we do get involved in these things. I know. We... This one's about a young chap who is blind. Mm-hmm. Who they say he's never going to get his eyesight back. But he's kind of um, got super senses. Yeah. You know, he can smell. He can start even smell emotions, kind of. You know, yeah, he's, yeah. He's... all his other senses are really ramped up. Yeah, he's, so he can smell and hear and so on. He's, uh, he's super sensed. Mm. And he's also a very intelligent, gifted young chap. Young musician, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he speaks a lot about how he's finding the music. It's not that mm. he's creating the music, he's finding it, you know. Uh, and he gets put fast-tracked onto some great sort of musician scholarship yeah. he's in a, school. He's a composer and he's a pianist mm-hmm. by trade, really. Yeah, he meets a girl. Yeah, has some fun with that, doesn't he? Some sexy time <laughs> with her. And he hears the music while he's having sexy time with her. Yeah. So he's in, again here, there's lots of references to experiences yeah. being the thing. And senses. It sort of harks back to the Hellbound Heart when Frank opens the box at the beginning and all his senses get ramped up to ten. Absolutely. And, you know, and he can't even contain himself. It's yeah. too much for him. Literally. And that's what this guy's about. Apart from his eyesight, everything else is, yeah, ramped up to the nth degree. Yeah, so this sort of music of him having sex is, yeah. you know, all in his mind. He has a rival yeah. at the school. A guy who's jealous because he's better than him. <laughs> It's a little bit like Michael Jackson, one of the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy is actually having an affair with yeah. Deborah. What a prick. I know. And they there's some really horrible bits here. I mean, like there's a bit where he's they're like, Oh, why don't you play a song for us? Yeah. And then they're both, you know, kissing each other and getting off with each other in the same room. But because he knows he can't see them. But he knows because of his super senses. Yeah, he can smell their cruel excitement. <laughs> Amazing. Aww. Uh, now their relationship takes a slight turn here mm. because she's sort of saying let's let's play a game let's play a game and she ties him up to the bed and starts slashing him with knives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he talks about the mix of pain, pleasure, and secret agendas. Mm. And th- he's loving it. This is it. This it's is great. the ultimate the song, sensation. The song's better than yeah. ever for him. This yeah. is the ultimate sensation. He loves it. Um, so while this is going on, uh, someone's breaking into his house. Hmm. What Mm-mm. what could be happening there? Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not. This bastard, <laughs> the other guy, has now. This is horrible Ooh. and one of the most amazing pages that I think any of these comics. When I first read, I first read this one when I was quite young. When I saw this page and went, oh, what he does? He puts little razor blades in between each key on the piano. Yeah. So the next time the guy sits down, he does that, you know, down the piano with his fingers. But because he's because of his razor, his fingers are just sliced up and it's graphically drawn and painted in the most amazing picture. And it's great. That is horrible. Yeah. And you can really feel it when you look at the picture. Yeah, that's brilliant. He's not that bothered. Not really. He quite likes that. Mm. Yeah. He's, this is all getting him... This is the thing in his mind now. He's becoming obsessed with the pain, the yep. pleasure, how to Creating create the, song. the perfect song that uses all of these things. And, mm. um, you know, uh, time moves on. Uh, yeah. Stephen, the guy who betrayed him, who slashed his hands open, he went off to be a famous musician. Yeah. Uh, Deborah got cancer and mm. died. Yep. And this is a great bit where she, where he says, I visited, she smelled fabulous. Yeah. Fear and pain fought for dominance in harmonies of anguish. Ooh. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, now he's doing lots of research. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's researching all sorts of lonely books and old tomes and stuff, which I love. Yeah. Love all this kind of stuff. Love all this. Looking up about lunatics and strange people over the years. And he creates a piece of music. Yeah. He says, you know, music is a puzzle. Mm. And he's trying to create melodies of suffering and malice and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's actually got a bit here where you can see Cenobites behind him kind yeah. of influencing mm-hmm. what he's doing. Yeah, they're there behind the behind the floorboards. Mm. Uh, and then we come to another unfortunate graphic bit. This is horrible. Yeah, where he's like, right, I really have to unlock the puzzle. Yeah. Uh, so I believe he... Well, is he putting glass and razor blades and nails on... Yeah, nails onto... them to a door on the floor, mm-hmm. and then crawls across them. Yeah, naked. Oh, that's horrible. Uh, yes, yeah. To unlock the puzzle, I had to unlock myself. Yeah, and that he does. So he's finally completed yeah. this masterpiece of music, and he wants a big concert. Mm-hmm. And he knows exactly who he wants to play the music. Yeah, good old Stephen, his rival, his nemesis. Yeah. And they're all sitting and, there. A, and lots of people are there to watch. There's a huge audience. Mm-hmm. And as Stephen's playing, it turns out this song unlocks a puzzle. Yeah, this song is the is the gateway to hell. Chains shoot up at Stephen, grab him, pierce his eyelids and that his is mouth. Ridiculous. That's a great picture. That is amazing. Horrible. One hook through his lip, two yeah. on his bottom eyelids. Pulling his eyelids down. Whoa. And then we have the Cenobites here. We have... Yeah. Um, we have one we haven't seen before, who's got spikes coming out of his shoulders and his wrists, mm. and his head sort of, his brain's being exposed, connected by wires to sort of clothing on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And we have another guy who's very small, mm. you can only see his eyes. Yeah. His face is sort of covered Looks like up. He's, his head's been hit, on, he's been hit on the head with a massive mallet and it's gone into his neck. He looks a bit like one of those guys from He-Man. Was it He-Man? Yeah, Ram-Man. Ram-Man. <laughs> he looks a bit like Ram-Man. Yeah. But then this next page sort of implies... Does it imply that everyone in the audience has also been ripped apart and taken to hell? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So basically this it's whole... a hell of a puzzle, this one, <laughs> isn't it? This whole concert turns into a complete massacre. Yeah. And there's just some brilliant images here. He's mm. sitting there in the audience with, like, people in lovely cocktail dresses with skulls. Yeah. And just, oh, God, everyone's been massacred. And he's just sitting there, calm and happy. He's in hell. He's taken to hell. Yeah. And what have they done to him? Oh. Oh. They've given him his eyesight back. Mm. Great. But, but unfortunately, <laughs> they've taken away every other sense. Yeah. I'm here for all eternity. All I can do is watch. And I love it that he's like, I'm deaf. A touch of exquisite cruelty, that. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he appreciates it. He appreciates <laughs> it, absolutely. I mean, you know, he's into this. And there's a great final page where you mm-hmm. see leviathan you see people playing musical instruments made out of human bodies someone being completely ripped open yeah uh, hideous stuff really really grotesque and brilliant this one's really good you should definitely read this one brilliant <laughs> it's brilliant great. brilliant stuff marvelous right let's crack on straight on to book number four so the three stories in the book four are called cenobite like flies to wanton boys and to prepare a face. Ooh. So we start with Cenobite, exclamation mark. Mm. And this one like, is another famous writer. Yeah. Well, famous from the Hellraiser world. Yeah. 
This one is written by Nicholas Vince, who, who was the chatterer in mm. the first two films. Yeah. And is a writer in his own right as well. And this one is all about obsession, and it's a story of one man's obsession to open this box. Yeah, basically. And create chaos. That's his goal. Yeah, he's uh, the sort of basic thrust of the story, as far as I have it, is that um, he has tried to impose order his whole life. Yeah. He's been a servant of order, mm-hmm. and it's abandoned him. It's yeah. kind of not gone well. So down again the again. story starts with him uh, having smashed a woman over the head <laughs> with with the puzzle box yeah. and him walking into hell mm-hmm. because he wants the chaos yeah. of hell which is what you'd expect when you go to hell well exactly yeah. you? and he meets Leviathan yeah lord of chaos and he shouts let chaos rule and Leviathan says <laughs> he always that, says that's that that's written that in. yeah that's great and then a Cenobite turns up now, let's just talk about the artwork for this one now, mm. because the artwork on this one is quite abstract, mm. and it's sort of, you know, again, painted colours and... Things. It's, it seems like sort of bits of newspaper and newspaper. photographs almost, and um, painted colours. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very interesting. So this Cenobite that's turned up and is talking to him now, you don't really get to see it properly. No, it, it sort of seems, yeah, like... It kind of harkens back to me to the stuff that happened in uh, Hellraiser 2, where you've got like clown faces appearing and yeah. you know things like that. It's, it's like that sort of thing. It's yeah, when Tiffany walks into hell and there's all lots of weird things going on around her. This is kind of what's happening to this guy. Mm. And while I mean, he's being skewered by chains and things. I think the the artwork is it gives you it, it really does give you a, a feeling of that. Like you feel mm. uh, each page you're kind of going, "Oh, wow." And you're getting sort of little flashes of stuff that's yeah. going on but you don't really see what's going on no because well as this Cenobite is talking to him and finding out why he's there and why he wants to be there in the first place it flashes back throughout this guy's life yeah to what brought him to this place and because it's, it's flashing back and forth the artwork's doing the same it sort of makes you feel like you don't really know where you are absolutely and that's great so he's basically going through incidents in his life where he's tried to impose order yeah. by basically doing horrible things to people. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean, we start off, you know, with him at the... Uh... It's, this, it's like school academy, isn't it? Yeah. He has to make sure another boy behaves. So, and, he... <laughs> and, the, and the, the boy has uh, made a mess in his trousers. Yeah. So to make sure he doesn't do it again, he shouts dirty little shitter over and over again at him. Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, he's, he was a bully as a kid, but, yeah. you know, he thought he was doing it for good reasons. He ends up in the army... Mm. Going to the Falklands War. Mm. And then you've got someone who's a deserter in his unit. Yeah. And it's constantly people saying, like, but you're supposed to maintain discipline. You're yeah. supposed to maintain order. And you're in charge of these people. Here he's pouring bleach all over the guy. Mm. <laughs> so it's all pretty dark. And whilst this is happening, we're flashing back into hell. And um, he's being tied up tied with up, ropes yeah. and barbed wire. And, and the Cenobite's sort of saying, so what was this all about? When you did this to this person? Mm. He's going, no, you don't understand. It was, it, I had to, I had to do it. And he's saying, look, you know, I had to uh, maintain order and discipline. Mm. And even Barbara understood that, the lady from the beginning of the story. Yeah. And then we at, we're at the Falklands, mm-hmm. uh, where he basically allows people to die because he sort yeah. of disobeys orders. He pushes forward when he should yeah, have exactly. taken them back for he medical attention. That he's, yeah, he's going to do this thing to get the end goal, even if he has to sacrifice a couple of people on the way. Yeah. Which he thinks is the right thing to do. The greater good. 
Yes. Unfortunately, his peers don't agree with him and they court-martial him for it. Mm, dishonourably discharged yeah, from the service, imprisoned for not less than three years. Uh, so he's now saying, look, I was betrayed, I was yeah. betrayed for these people. And he is being changed while he's saying all this. You mm. know, he's kind of basically being turned into a Cenobite. Yeah. While this is all happening. Mm. Uh, which is really cool, actually. Yeah, it's nice. And then we flash back again to basically the beginning of the story, or slightly before the beginning of yeah, the story. Yeah, where he meets Barbara, his lady. No. Or he's met her already, and he's now with her, living with her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's basically an artist. Mm. She's yeah. saying, you know, go. we've got to go to the gallery for the showing, and... He doesn't work, really care. He's all sort of distracted, and she's, she's saying, your work is based on chaos. Mm. So at this point in his life, he... Yeah. You know, all these experiences have really led him to be quite an unhappy person. And then he gets a, a gift. Yeah, a package. package yeah. Which has in it the puzzle box and a note that basically says, you need to solve this puzzle box and meet Leviathan and then chaos will triumph. Yeah. And it mentions the Marshan. Yeah. After its creator, Philip Marshan. The invitation to chaos. Exactly. So this, I mean, this is this is mean <laughs> because it's basically just you know making him do this because to get something he wants that he's not going to get. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> so um, he completely misses his gallery mm-hmm. showing, and he's just uh, gets obsessed by the box. Obsessed by the box, as always happens. Barbara comes back. She's not very happy. Mm-mm. And she's saying, "Look, you've got to be organised." And he's just going absolutely mental, going, "Order betrayed me." Order is wrong. And mm-hmm. Chaos is the only thing that's important. She actually calls him on it, and she's just like, "Look, this is all just posing. Yeah. You are an ordered person. You always will be. Your mugs all hang in the same direction. The <laughs> phone is always replaced to the right." And she's like, "Face it, you you are an ordered person." And he flips, and to prove her wrong, he smashes her head in <laughs> with the yeah. mugs. Yeah. Uh, so at that point. That doesn't happen at this point in the story. Basically, that's what happens at the beginning of the story. Yeah. In the story, uh, we're back in hell. And he has been turned into a Cenobite. Yeah. Edward Leverett. He says, from now on, you do not have a name. You are a Cenobite. And this Cenobite is one who pops up in a few of these stories mm. uh, with a sort of spinning, constantly spinning face, it seems. Yeah. And a sort of kind of samurai-esque helmet and yeah. stuff on. Very strange. And this is great. Because he's really laying out the doctrine yeah. of the Cenobites here. Mm-hmm. He's like, that note was a trap. Uh, chaos already rules the world of flesh. You will learn to fight it. Mm. You will live behind their world. You will not question. You will pervert, destroy, corrupt, and overball. You will, be, you will obey. The holy war will be won. Mm. Leviathan will triumph over flesh. Order will succeed chaos. So there we go. And this is what hell is all about. That it's is, all about that's order. It. Yeah. Completely laid out there. And uh, he's loving it. And he's happy. He's like, at last, I don't need to worry about anything. I just do what I'm told. At last, I am slave, he says. Yeah. So Um, he's happy. Happy ending for this guy. Happy ending for this guy. Uh, Very interesting idea. Yeah, good one, this. Very interesting idea. Mm. Um, One that I I don't kind of go back to reread often because it is so kind of... Uh, it, it does make you feel quite like whoa when you read it. You it know, does, yeah. The, it the does. panels the, are sort of all over the place, and, and the abstract sense of it it mm. makes you feel a bit uneasy. Yeah, yeah. Which, which I like. It does the business. Yeah, <laughs> it does the business. It does what it's supposed to do. Mm. And um, yeah, it's good stuff. It is very good. Enjoyed that one. This is Nicholas Vince, and you're listening to the Hellraiser podcast. 
So this story is called Like Flies to Wanton Boys. And it's the story of a couple, the chap of which had a bit of a nasty experience seven years ago. Mm. So this one is set quite a while ago. looks to be sort of 1800s, I think, sort of time. And it starts in a lovely plush party. Mm. And and then a couple of people are talking about a couple of the guests at the party. Yeah. Saying, I haven't seen him for a while. (laughs) And he says, well, actually, it's it's weird they're out, these couple, because they haven't left their house for seven years. Yeah. So the other guy says, oh, interesting, tell me more. And so he tells this story about Mm. what happened seven years ago. Yeah. Which was at another party. This puzzle box was being passed around. Yeah. It came to this guy, Ian, who solved it just easily. Yeah. As if he'd been born doing it, it says. I really like that idea. Yeah, it's yeah, it's good. I mean, it implies that everyone else was trying and couldn't. He just got it. Went. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I just, I just, I just really like the idea that you know, there's this party where they're all kind of this because the guy always gives out puzzles and he's mm. like, oh, do this one, do that one. And yeah. in this case, it's a box. Yeah, yeah. So where did it come from? Mm. So Ian's opened the box. Nothing happens immediately, but he goes upstairs to get to get a coat from the closet and he sees a strange glowing door. So he opens this door. And there's a big, black, empty room with another door at the end of it. And the door he's just come through has vanished. So he goes to the next door, and every time he opens a door, there's another door, but it's always further away than the one before. Mm. And this, when I first read this, this idea I found really quite frightening. Because there's almost, he doesn't know if there's any way he'll ever get out of this. This is proper sort of, you know, purgatory, like hell. Yeah, and it, and all he can do is go to the next door, even though it's further and further away. Even it becomes even like a little pinprick at the end. It's really well conveyed in these in the yeah. artwork. I mean, the artwork we must say about that as well is is again excellent. Mm. Um, you know, really beautifully sort of painted. Yeah. Um, but this bit where he's just in this place, it's mostly black, isn't it? It's mostly darkness, yeah. and you just see these doors, mm. like golden doors that he's running towards. Yeah. And they get further and further away, so much so that by the end of it, he's lost nearly all strength from his body and he's just dragging himself along towards the last one. Mm. Until finally he reaches a door, goes to open it, and he can't. It's locked. Locked? What's he going to do? He can't go back. Mm. So he's he's almost dead at this point, isn't he? He's he's He's... really had a struggle getting here. So he starts banging on the door. And then we cut back to the real world, and it's three days after he disappeared... And his cook hears a banging from a kitchen cupboard. Mm. Opens it and there he is. That's weird. <laughs> that is weird. So he's kind of been working his way through this emptiness down the house, <laughs> as it were. But he's completely off his tree now. And he, he decides that they shouldn't go out ever again. Yeah, which is understandable. Yeah, so that's why they stayed in their house for seven years. So he didn't even get out of his bedroom no. for over a year. No. And his wife really sticks by him. Yeah, but she does want him to get better, and she coaxes him to come out a little bit at a time. Come on, let's go down to this party. They go to the party that was at the beginning of the story, and after that, the guys, the guy Ian says, "Okay, I think I can do this now. Maybe we should go away somewhere." Yeah, yeah. and she's really happy with this. She's really chuffed. But then she's not very well. No. She starts coughing in the night. So he runs to get help. Yeah, and then she coughs up. What looks like a little diamond. A little leviathan. Like a little leviathan, yeah. Leviathan in your pocket. (laughs) Or in your throat. So, that's a bit odd. Mm. And she's kind of, you know, stressing out, obviously. Mm. And at this point, she kind of knows that something horrible is going to happen. 
And she's really worried that he's going to get lost again. Yeah, please don't let him go again. And he's rushing back to find her, and she rushes towards him. He tells her not to open the door. And then she's in there. She's in the darkness. she disappears, and she's in the darkness. She's alone. Alone. Horrible. Yeah, really horrible. (laughs) (laughs) So this one's, yeah, nasty and unpleasant. But good. <laughs> um, I like this one. It's it's not. It's a bit depressing. It must be said. Mm. There's not much f- fun about it. But it's a you know a true horror story. It is. It is, and it doesn't deal directly with the Cenobites or anything like that. But no. it's a nice uh, little side story, you know, to do with the box. Yeah. Uh, to do with hell, and um, yeah, really awful. I mean, the the thing of going through the doors and being in the darkness didn't grab me as much as it grabbed you. But mm. it, this end bit here where she's yeah. just standing there in her nightdress in the darkness is, <laughs> is awful. And it is a truly terrifying thought. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to one that definitely is a lot of fun, which is the last story in book four. It's called To Prepare a Face. Ooh. Face. It's about face. The face. Cenobite. So it's written by the same guy who wrote The Warm Red and The Crystal Precipice. He does all the face stories. But this one gives Face's backstory, how he became a Cenobite. And it turns out he was an actor in the silent movie era. Mm. He's well known for being the man of a thousand faces in horror films. Now, it doesn't say that he is Lon Chaney. But all the p- parts he's playing in these films are parts that Lon Chaney played. Yeah, and there are pictures of Lon Chaney, of Lon Chaney in the around. story. So it is basically saying this is a, an alternate reality where Lon Chaney became a Cenobite. Yeah. <laughs> which, is a, which is an interesting choice because mm. Lon Chaney was known as the Man of a Thousand Faces. He looked different in everything. Hunchback of Notre Dame and then Phantom of the Opera is probably his most famous creation. Mm. He used to put really weird things inside his cheeks and like flare his nostrils out with prosthetics and... well he kind of he kind of did the whole Cenobite thing because he, well, he did yeah. things where I mean he would have hooks pulling his mouth yeah, apart exactly. you know so and he would go through quite a lot of physical pain but it was for, to his, get... for his art though. yeah it wasn't for no no, no 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 that's what I'm saying that's what <laughs> yeah. I'm saying he, he would not care about the pain to Absolutely. create the art yeah. at the end of it and we're not saying that Lon Chaney was evil <laughs> no <laughs> but this character however this version of him He's not so nice. Well, he's a bit of a tortured, you know, genius, isn't he? He's, genius. he's he doing well. He to create the, the perfect face. And the, the, his latest job is Oliver Twist. And he's playing Fagin. Mm. But he can't get the face right. He can't With his makeup, he can't create the right face to look like Fagin. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's, he's depressed. He's saying to his co-star, the lovely lady, who it implies she quite likes him. She's coming to see him with a drink. He just basically says, I can't, I can't do this. I've got to get a face. And she's just trying to say, hey, do you want to just have a drink? And he says, no, I've got to find a face. Well, yeah, you know, he's 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 completely, like, focused on it. You know, mm. he's the tortured artist. And she's like, look, you'll always, you'll do it. You do it every hey, time. Yeah, come on, man. Of course. And then he goes off and has a wander around town in his depressed funk. He's looking at people's faces to try and get some kind of... Inspiration. Inspiration to make, make one out of makeup. Yeah. But then he sees one. He sees this guy walk past who, in his mind, looks exactly how Fagin should look. Mm. So he follows him into a, a mannequin shop. Mm. And in this mannequin shop, he finds this guy. Well, there's a huge blue light pouring out of the shop. There is, yeah. And he's like, what the hell? Runs in. And the guy with Fagin's face has been killed and his face has been removed. 
Yeah. And not only removed, it's hanging from the hand of one of the mannequins, as if it's being presented to him. Yeah. And he thinks, I can do this, I can take this face and wear it for the film. He obvious says, choice. I, I was saved. Yeah, obvious choice, yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. If you can't make a face, then wear someone else's. Absolutely. So then we cut to um, some cops. Yeah, the cops are on the case. The cops are telling, you know, they've, they've, they've seen the film and they're talking about how great it is. Mm. Um, but they're also investigating why this man turned up with no face. Yeah. They even interview him. They do because they get suspicious because someone recognises the fact that the Fagin in the film looks like this guy that was killed. Yeah, and they feel a bit silly going to yes. ask him because they're yeah. like, obviously you didn't cut his face off and wear it for the film. But <laughs> did you? <laughs> <laughs> but we better check. Yeah. And he says, no, I didn't. Don't worry about it. So we move on and he's got a new role. And this new role is going to be the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm. So he has to become Quasimodo. So now he needs to find a face that would fit the part of Quasimodo. Yeah. And he comes to good old England. Yeah. Mm. And this is this is, yeah, this just is horrible. disturbing. <laughs> yeah, it is. Really disturbing. He mm. goes to a, a circus or yeah. a freak show mm-hmm. and a lady is bathing her child mm-hmm. who is basically... Uh, Incredibly handicapped. A very, very heavily handicapped uh, young man with a very misshapen face. But our hero, the Lon Chaney character, sees the face and thinks that could work for Quasimodo. Yeah, so he runs in and bloody drowns him yeah. and cuts his face off. Mm-hmm. So it's past the stage of him being given a face by an unseen person. He's now become the killer and the face stealer. Well, actually, this is, yeah, it's even worse than I just said because he, he drowns no, he, him. Yeah, he drowns him. And, and then he digs him up. He waits for him to be buried, digs up the body and, yeah, cuts the face off the dead body and wears it. And again, the film's a big success. Absolutely. And by chance, this woman... Watches the film. Yeah, the the mother. And sees, yeah, the and mother. And she sees goes the to face. watch the film at the cinema and is like, oh my God, that's my son's face. And, uh, yeah. But she... now the guy, the, the actor, the Lon Chaney character, he's he's happy now. He's, you know, he's found his calling. This is how he's going to make his living. And he he basically asks the, the lovely lady. Patty. Patty to marry him. But she says, ah, I can't. I'm actually uh, going to marry... Norman. Norman. Hmm. Another actor. Yeah, the guy who's always the leading man, the yeah. handsome leading man in all these films. So you've got all that rivalry going on here. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the better actor. Yeah, but exactly. he has to be buried underneath makeup and human faces and, yeah. <laughs> um, to, to play these parts. Yeah, and the very attractive leading man has stolen the lady that he wanted. Hmm. Mm. And so now we are on to Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, his next job is going to be Phantom of the Opera. The, mm. And he's got a plan for this one. Mm. And his plan is he's going to get Norman and deform Norman's face and wear it. Good plan. Good plan. Yeah. And there's loads of... I really like the way that they've tied this story in with the real films. Yeah, you, you know, see that He's it, got yeah. the drawings there's of the Phantom. a sketch Phantom of the actual Phantom of the Opera from the, lovely. the 1920s film. It's brilliant. And a lovely moment with Norman looking at the sketch and going, mm. are you sure you want to go yeah. so far? This is a bit much, isn't it? And you think, well, it will be for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, the police are putting it all together here. Mm-hmm. As weird as this is, they have looked. Yeah. They've dug up the body of they've the... They've got evidence carnival boy and found out that he had his face torn off mm-hmm. and yes it can only be yeah. our actor meanwhile the actor has drugged Norman and he's getting his acid ready 
<laughs> yeah, he's going to pour acid. This on is his a proper face. like gothic horror story, isn't it? Like something from the 1920s. Oh, it's good, it's isn't it? Brilliant. Yeah, it's good. It's really good. This one. And just as he's about to burn Norman's face, well, he does. He does. He does actually start to burn his <laughs> he face. He does start to, yeah. yeah. He starts to burn his face and no one will hear us because there's a, a workman hammering a nail in the next door. Bam, bam, bam. So no one can hear you scream. Even if you could, even though, you know, he's he's muffled and tied up. But then the police turn up. The cops show up. Yeah. He does it, Buster. <laughs> and he's like, you don't understand. And he says, you idiots, you're destroying the performance of the ages. <laughs> and that's brilliant. He's actually having a go at the police for stopping him rip this man's face off. He is just the complete, you know, yeah. perfectionist kind of artist who kind of doesn't see what he's doing is wrong. No. Uh, and then, lo and behold, if it couldn't get any more shocking, Pinhead arrives. Yeah, there's a big light and Pinhead arrives. His now, teacher. What I took from this is that... The guy was about to be killed by the police, but Pinhead had been watching from the shadows, mm. and he thought, I don't want that guy to be killed. He could do really well down here. Mm. So he steps in, intervenes, grabs him, pulls him to hell, and disappears again. Because as far as the cops... Yeah, they just stand there. Well, yeah, going, they just dis- what the disappear. Hell just like, Hang on, <laughs> what happened? And yeah. Pinhead sort of just like rescues him, basically. Yeah. Sneak, sneaks onto Earth, grabs him, pulls him back to hell. Yeah. It's lovely stuff. So it's another story where, again, it's nothing to do with the box and blah, 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 blah. Mm. Pinhead has directly intervened in this man's yeah. life. But again, like earlier, reasons. this one is, is 1920s again. So mm. Pinhead, is, again, is a, quite an early young Pinhead. Young Pinhead. <laughs> um, and this is lovely when they're in hell. Yeah, the last page is great. It's, it's a little coded to the story of Pinhead and Face chatting in hell. Yeah, he's like I've got a face now for every occasion, one for every mood. All these faces on the wall and as we mentioned uh, in the last podcast about these comics he staples these faces to his head using you know, actual staples Mm. Although he says I've grown rather inured to the pain, I've started thinking about screws. Yeah, (laughs) and that's great because it's just the two of them walking along in hell Pinhead's got his hands behind his back. He's having a nice little stroll. Yeah. I'm thinking about screwing these faces onto my head. Yeah. As if Pinhead's going, hmm. That yeah, sounds good. Idea. And, and he also mentions here, he says, um, you've adapted very well. Leviathan is pleased. Yeah. So, so another insight into what goes on in hell. Another happy ending. <laughs> and another happy ending. This is a happy ending for Face. He's, he seems happy. With he, all is these happy. Faces. And he is happy. He is happy. As we... Find out in the other stories that we've read about him, he's you know he's a cenobite who goes to Earth and does his his bits and pieces, and he always seems happy there. Yep. So really, Face is a pretty happy cenobite in general. Yeah, absolutely. Good and for him. This is a darn good story. Yeah, really good. Artwork, really good. brilliant, really good. I think mm. I just really, really, really like the artwork in this story. Yeah, it's great stuff. Um, and the the whole idea of it is just really cool. Yeah. And again. Another story that links the creativity of something, exactly. some kind of performance, something yep. like that, uh, with with hell. Mm. Well done. Well done, everyone. So that concludes our discussion about books three and four of the Epic Comics. Thank you for sticking with us. We'll be doing the next ones at some point in the future. We're going to work our way through all of them slowly, bit by bit. Mm-hmm. Just to quickly remind you that we do have a website, hellraiserpodcast.com. We've got a Twitter account, at HellraiserCast, if you want to fancy following us there. We've got a Facebook page. Our email address for any feedback is hellraiserpodcast at hotmail.co.uk. And also, don't forget, there is a very special surprise coming up on <laughs> July the 13th. Yes, Friday the 13th of July. Friday the 13th of July, a uh, little some- bit of fun. You'll be getting something fun from us. Yes. 
Now, our next podcast, speaking of something fun from us, this is great as well. Our next podcast is an interview with Nicholas Vince, who played Chatterer in the first two films and also wrote the story Cenobite from this comic and has written other comics and some some great stuff. You'll find much more about that next time. Mm. But we were lucky enough to recently sit down and have a chat with him. Yeah. And we had a lovely chat. It went on for a long time, so we're going to split it over two podcasts. We get them both at the same time, though. And that's our next release will be our special interview with Nicholas Vince. Yeah, he's got some really good stuff to say. It's yeah, really, really, some really interesting. interesting stories about making of the films and Nightbreed and all sorts of things. So definitely check that one out, everyone. It's, it's good. It's good stuff. Mm. So you'll get that at some point very soon. Yes. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. I'm Peter. I'm Phil. Good. We'll see you soon. We'll see you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.